You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1894th edition of the Edmundsbury News Talk for the 1st of September 2022. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Val Fletcher. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. And our four headlines this week are Libraries to offer refuge from the cold. We need support, say firms and charities. Families appeal to bring home body of hero killed in Ukraine. Former Haverhill mayor who admitted bribery resigns as councillor. Libraries in Suffolk will be stepping up to offer help and support to households in difficulty over the winter months as the cost of living crisis tightens its grip. And other public attractions, such as museums, could join in too, with the idea being to provide warm banks where people can go if they are struggling to pay rocketing energy bills to heat their home. Suffolk Libraries, the charity that runs the county's library service, has been speaking to local retailers about the possibility of offering warm, free drinks and looking at funding for social supermarkets. Kindness racks will also be provided where people can donate warm winter clothes for people to collect. The energy price cap is set to rise to £3,549 in October, putting increased pressure on already strained household budgets. Bruce Leake, the charity's chief executive, highlighted schemes already in operation to provide support, including weekly bags of fruit and vegetables on offer at Gainsborough Library in Ipswich for £2. He also said rural libraries, such as at Framlingham, were running community fridges and several sites were working with local food banks. Demand for free computer and internet access by people looking for jobs, claiming benefits and getting online was set to increase, he believed. While staff were experienced in dealing with inquiries for financial support and directing people to where they could find help. He said many libraries also hosted regular drop-in sessions, giving people easier access to help from organisations such as Citizens Advice Bureau, along with support for digital skills, financial literacy or applying for jobs. Lucy Maxwell, Museum Development Officer at Suffolk County Council, said she was not aware of any museums in the county that were planning to offer warm banks. I don't know of any museums that are planning to change their opening times to help people, she said. Anne-Marie Hogan, Director of the National Horse Racing Museum in Newmarket, said she was not aware of a warm banks scheme, but her museum would be happy to help. She said, if there is an initiative and we can help in any way, we will do so. Barry St Edmunds businesses and charities are calling for support to help them through a perfect storm of rising costs and bills. The call has been made by the town's business improvement group, as well as bosses across all sectors, including retail, hospitality and leisure. Some businesses have seen energy bills rise by more than 100% overnight, on top of other spiralling costs. Leisure provider Abbeycroft Leisure said this week its electric bill was up by £700,000 and gas bills were forecast to rise by at least a million pounds in March. Town businesses are now calling on the government to help them through the crisis, as well as hoping customers who have also been hit by skyrocketing bills, can support them by shopping local. Owen Calvert-Lyons, director of the Theatre Royal Berries and Edmonds, 
said after the losses caused by the pandemic, the energy bill hikes felt like death by a thousand cuts. Our electricity bill has risen by £47,000 a year, from 35000 to 82000 he said. It is a huge sum of money after already making all the savings we could during the pandemic. We need government help now. Our team has worked phenomenally hard over the last two years to get the theatre back open and running for the public, and this is just another blow. Experts have warned rising energy prices could push UK inflation as high as 18% next year, the highest rate in nearly 50 years. Mark Cordell, chief executive of Berries and Edmonds Business Improvement District, has called on the town's MP, Joe Churchill, to help ensure businesses survive the crisis. I know both she and I are very proud of how Barry has bounced back after the last two years, but even this strength of performance is unlikely to be enough to face these forthcoming challenges without suffering casualties. A heartbroken family have paid tribute to a real-life hero who was killed while volunteering as a medic in war-torn Ukraine. Craig McIntosh travelled to the Eastern European nation to help on the front line as a medic, having served in the Army Reserves from the ages of 16 to 23. But the 48-year-old from Thetford was shot while rushing to help a friend whose car had been hit by a tank shell in the war zone. He died on August the 24th, Ukrainian Independence Day. Now, his family back in Norfolk have set up a GoFundMe page in an effort to repatriate his body and put him to rest in his native land. Writing on the GoFundMe page, Sister Lorna said, Our brother bravely volunteered to go to Ukraine as a medic to help save lives in this war-torn country. In the line of duty, helping others, he lost his life. This selfless man is currently stranded in a morgue in Ukraine and there is no help to get him home. He gave his life to save others and he needs to come back home and have the service he deserves. A true hero's service, surrounded by his family and friends. His sister Claire said, We still don't understand the full picture. We've been offered scraps of information from kind-hearted volunteers giving us what they know. We feel there has been a serious lack of support to help return his body to England and to those volunteering on the front lines. Mr McIntosh was inspired to travel to Hurricane after seeing the devastation on the news, feeling obliged to help. He was on his second stint when he was killed having previously spent almost a month in Ukraine earlier this year. He first arrived in Eastern Europe on March the 24th, returning to the United Kingdom on April the 22nd. He then went back out to Ukraine on August the 3rd, but was killed just over three weeks later. The campaign has raised more than £3,919. A former Haverhill mayor has resigned as both a town and district councillor after pleading guilty to bribery. Elaine McManus, 66, admitted bribing two workers to back up her lies to Ofsted over how many staff were on duty when three children escaped from the grounds and got onto a road in March 2021. Stepping Stones Nursery has since closed. Mrs McManus, who was the manager and director of Stepping Stones Nursery in Haverhill, paid the two nursery workers £100 each after they signed a false statement about how many staff were working on the day of the incident. After pleading guilty to two charges of giving financial advantage to induce improper performance of a relevant function or activity, she was sentenced to a 12-month community order which included 60 hours of unpaid work and 15 rehabilitation sessions. She also had to pay costs of £105 and a £95 victim surcharge. Following her sentence, the Labour Party in West Suffolk called for her to resign as a councillor at both West Suffolk District Council and Haverhill Town Council. 
A spokesman for the Haverhill Town Council Labour Group said, Following her plea of guilty to the charge of bribery and corruption, the Labour Group on Haverhill Town Council consider Councillor Elaine McManus' position as a town and district councillor to be untenable. Her presence as an elected representative of the town brings both councils into disrepute and is a cause of reputational damage to the councils and other councillors and an affront to residents. Until now we have kept a respectful silence on the whole sorry affair, allowing justice to run its course and sentencing to take place. We believed, wrongly as it transpired, that a custodial sentence would follow, meaning that Councillor McManus would be disqualified from holding office. At the very least, we expected her to resign of her own accord. Sadly, no resignation has been forthcoming, and we call on Councillor McManus to take the only honourable course of action available to her, and to relinquish her roles immediately. Spokesman for both councils confirmed she has resigned her positions. Mrs McManus has been contacted for comment. Our general news section starts by picking up our headline story on the cost of living crisis. Charities are feeling the pinch as the cost of living crisis sends their bills soaring. This week, St Nicholas Hospice Care said its energy prices were fixed until October, after which it expected costs to increase by £25,000 compared to the last financial year. Jelena Sarubina, Corporate Services Director, said, The rise in fuel prices also means we are having to spend more on transport, which is vital to ensure our staff can get to where they need to be and support patients out in the community. Since last July, we estimate we have spent 42% more on petrol and diesel. She said the organisation was doing everything it could to run services as efficiently as possible without compromising on the care and support offered. We know the pressures being felt by St Nick's are not unique. We're all feeling the pinch and we recognise the situation may get worse, she said. We have to raise £12,000 per day to keep the hospice going and the gap between what people can give and what they need is widening. Amanda Bloomfield, Chief Executive of Berry Based Gatehouse, which works with vulnerable people through its food bank, home store, community wellbeing and Christmas projects, said the electricity bill for April to August was £5,000 more than the same period in 2021. We control our costs as much as we can, but it will have an effect on our day-to-day running. It does mean we might not be able to offer the same services, or where previously our services have been free, we might have to charge, she said. Where it is affecting us the most is that demand for what we do also increases as everyone is struggling. Amidst news of an energy price cap rise, a theatre in Bury St Edmunds has managed to dodge another wild bill increase. Concern was raised for the Theatre Royal in Bury St Edmunds last week after it was revealed that its annual electricity bill rocketed by £47,000, a 134% increase. However, the theatre has not been affected by the latest energy price cap rise as it does not apply to businesses and charities. A Theatre Royal spokesman said this leaves them subject to wild fluctuations in the energy market, with next year's bill increasing to £82,000. They added, If we hadn't been able to secure a deal, we would have been subject to the inflated market rates come December, which have risen substantially and are due to rise again when the price cap is reviewed every three months. Speaking on the future of the theatre, Artistic Director Owen Calvert-Lyon said they will be asking the government to step in with funding. West Suffolk College in Bury St Edmunds is among the heads of leading businesses in East Anglia who are calling on the next Prime Minister to invest in the region. Alongside Dr Andy Wood, Chief Executive Officer of Adnams, and Nick Rumsey, Managing Director of the JNIC Group, Nikos Savas from the College in Outrisbygate is one of the founding members of the Eastern Powerhouse. 
The powerhouse has written open letters to the Conservative Party leadership candidates with urgent demands. These include a commitment to improving rail links in East Anglia, with the powerhouse saying rail bottlenecks have dogged the region for years. Leaders said that the region's energy supplies could be used to power London and the West Midlands, and suggested government could use the region's tech clusters to create a silicon east. Suffolk schools are in the middle of a full-blown funding crisis and may be forced to dip into their reserves or cut back on staffing, school leaders have said. Just days away from the start of the new school year, schools in the county are struggling with spiralling energy price rises, unfunded pay increases and rampant inflation. School leaders have warned of redundancies, bigger class sizes and cuts to the curriculum. Jane Reason, executive head teacher at the Albany, an alternative provision site in Bury St Edmunds, said, We're looking at quite a significant challenge, and I would say all schools are. All of the things that are causing a crisis for your everyday person in the street are causing a crisis for any public sector body. The issue is that our budgets aren't increasing but our costs are increasing, so everything is incredibly squeezed. Ms Reason said the school was prudently expecting to dip into its reserves next year to make up the shortfall in funding. Among the added costs was the expectation that energy will increase around fourfold. She added that post-Covid schools had found recruitment more difficult and staff were now unable to afford to travel to work, particularly in rural areas. Schools will have fewer staff because they can't afford them or because they couldn't afford to come to work, she said. Jeff Barton, General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders and a former head teacher in Bury St Edmunds said, We're extremely concerned that the new term will see schools and colleges in the midst of a full-blown funding crisis and that they will have to make impossible choices about where to make cuts. The problem is that they are facing huge increases in energy bills as well as pay awards for which there is no additional government funding. The last thing they want to do is cut educational provision, but with massive extra costs and not enough money to pay for them, there is only one way this is going to go. Leadership teams will be looking at a range of options which are likely to include larger class sizes, reducing curriculum options, cutting back on teaching assistants and putting capital projects on hold, which had been planned to improve student facilities. We'll be consulting with them closely over the coming weeks to get a more detailed idea of the decisions they are having to make, so that we can try to get the government to undertake how seriously this situation is. At present, we're being told by the government that it thinks the extra costs are broadly affordable because of the funding announced in last year's spending review But this completely ignores the fact that at school level, funding allocation and financial circumstances vary widely across the sector. It is perfectly clear that many schools and colleges cannot remotely afford these extra costs within their existing budgets. Oberry St Edmunds Jewellers, which has been a linchpin of the town centre for hundreds of years, welcomed customers for the final time on Saturday the 27th of August. Thurlow Champness and Son Jewellers in Abbeygate Street announced last month it would be closing due to the retirement of Trevor Salt, Managing Director and Majority Shareholder. The Jewellers dates back 277 years and is believed to be the oldest continuing retail business in the town. A closing down sale saw all jewellery reduced by 50%, attracting legions of new and returning customers. Mr Salt said the response had been phenomenal and they had sold 95% of their stock, bringing in a seven-figure sum. This week, a further 10% discount had been added to remaining stock. Mr Salt added, It's still very mixed feelings. It's the end of an era but I'm looking forward to retiring as well. We've seen a lot of old customers and a number of new faces. We've had some very nice comments. There have been a number of offers for the premises, but nothing has yet been finalised, 
and they hope to make an announcement in the coming weeks. Its roots date back to 1745, when watchmaker George Lumley set up his business at 14 Abbeygate Street. The company was officially established in 1815 by John Gudgeon. In 1901, Edward Thurlow Chapness bought the company as a going concern. A short time later, in 1950, the business was passed down to his son, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Thurlow Champness, a trained optician. The owner of an established bike retailer in Bury St Edmunds has warned of the potential impact of the ongoing Felixstowe strike on his shop. Derek Hailstone runs Mix Cycles, a town centre shop in operation for half a century. It was opened by Mr Hailstone's late father Mick in 1970. The shop relies on goods brought in at the port of Felixstowe, witnessed a major industrial action over the past few days. On Sunday, almost 2,000 workers, the majority of the port's staff, walked out over a below inflation pay offer. Felixstowe processes almost half of the UK's container trade, and Mr Hailstone is concerned over the impact on his trade if the dispute continues. Most of his stock is manufactured in Taiwan and Cambodia and is imported through Felixstowe. Mr Hailstone believes that a short strike would not have any major impact on his business, but that a more protracted dispute could have negative commercial implications in the long term. Only eight days of action are currently planned at Felixstowe, but he is concerned a vote for further strikes could cause issues through the Christmas period. To mitigate the impact of the strike, Mr Hailstone said he may eventually ship in merchandise through Southampton via Rotterdam. Mr Hailstone said, The only issue is, if it goes back to Rotterdam, all the container stock that goes to Rotterdam would have to be unloaded to smaller ships. This would then be sent to Southampton and then on to local distribution centres to be delivered to us. Plans for a cinema in the basement of an empty flagship store in Bury St Edmunds have been approved. Bury WM Unit Trust has gained permission for an everyman cinema in the basement of the former Debenhams at the Ark Shopping Centre. The cinema, which would also contain a small bar restaurant, would be open 7.30am to 2.30am Monday to Sunday and bank holidays. It would feature four screens and a smaller screen for private hire with 306 seats in total. A West Suffolk Council report noted the planning authority received 15 letters from residents who raised concerns that a third cinema in the town would affect the viability of the existing picture houses, Cineworld and Abbeygate Cinema. On Friday, the Wall Street Journal reported that Cineworld Group PLC was preparing to file for bankruptcy within weeks. Other issues included fears over noise, insufficient parking, and that other uses would be preferable, such as a clothes store, department store, or family activity centre. Bury St Edmunds Town Council welcomed bringing the building back into use, but objected on the grounds of noise and disturbance due to the opening hours, which seemed to be excessive, particularly as the premises is located in a residential area and out of keeping with a cinema operation. However, economic development noted that high streets are having to adapt and change, with lesser uses becoming commonplace across the country. Following an acoustic set assessment, the report said the cinema would not have a negative impact on nearby residents. Last week, plans for a new high street retailer to take on the remaining floors of the empty store moved a step closer. A proposed variation to a servicing plan for the former Debenhams was approved. Berry WN Unit Trust has agreed terms with an unnamed high street retailer to occupy the ground and first floors of the empty shop. The acoustic assessment for the Everyman Cinema proposals in the basement of the buildings had made reference to a Primark. Last month, 
Centre Manager Alan Hassel said they were unable to comment on speculation as to which retailer could move in. Berry St Edmunds Royal Mail workers were on strike on Friday the 26th of August in a dispute over pay. The Communication Workers Union, CWU, called on all its postal worker members nationally to take action with a picket line formed at the town's delivery office. David Cole, a postal worker at the site and CWU industrial representative for Berry, said, During the pandemic... Royal Mail called us heroes, but we feel that within two years we have gone from hero to zero. We were heroes when we were working through the pandemic, delivering the likes of Covid test kits, toilet rolls and dog food, as well as huge profits of the company, but now we are asking for fair pay, we are back at the bottom again. On the effects of strike action being taken at locations across the country will have on service, A statement on the Royal Mail website said, We will be doing what we can to keep services running, but customers should expect significant disruption. A Suffolk conservation group has called for more water quality monitoring after figures revealed there were more than 2,000 raw sewage spills in the county's rivers in 2021. (coughs) Separate research conducted by the Liberal Democrats also revealed 49% of water company Anglian water sewerage discharges were not being measured last year. (laughs) Analysis by conservation experts the River Trust found there were 2,290 raw sewage spills lasting 17,271 hours, which affected the rivers Orwell, Waveney, Gipping, Deben and Stour. The East Suffolk District recorded the largest number of spills, 920, with Mid-Suffolk second with 715. Colin Nicholson, co-chair of conservationists the River Deben Association, that's RDA for short, which seeks to safeguard the river and its valley, called for more measuring of sewerage levels so action could be taken and river users advised. The Liberal Democrat survey found that Anglian Water was the worst performing water company in the UK for failures in monitoring how much sewage it discharges. However, an Anglian Water spokesperson said the findings were historic and currently 75% of sewage discharges were being monitored, providing some of the most reliable data across the industry with an inaccuracy level of 3%. She added the installation of event duration monitors, which ensure sewage treatment works adhere to their discharge limits, add combined sewer overflows, and that's CSO for short, was ahead of schedule, and there would be full coverage across all CSOs by 2023. She also said that between 2020 and 2025, more than £200 million will be invested to reduce storm spills across the east of England. Almost an entire street of families in Feltwell has been served with eviction notices after a food manufacturer said it needed the use of their properties. Some 11 households at Feltwell Farm near Brandon have been told by their new landlords, Cranswick Country Foods, that they must leave their properties by October the 16th. Residents said the order for them to go, sent with the legal minimum of two months' notice, was heartless, and that it would have been fairer to offer them some compensation. Cranswick said it was acting within the law and was engaging with the affected families. The families had been renting from another landowner who sold the properties to Cranswick early this year. Nick Baker has lived there for about five years. His fiancée Stacy died two years ago, leaving him as a single dad of two boys. To then have this eviction, both boys are really upset, as I am, he said. We put a lot of work into the garden. It's a work in progress, but we planted a lot of flower beds for their mum. It's heartbreaking. Another tenant, Ryan Bays, said, they just expect us to up and go. 
without any financial backing from themselves and all the money that we've put into our property, we've just got to leave it all there. It's a big concern, especially when you've got children with disabilities. With two months' notice, what are you supposed to do? In a statement, a Cranswick spokeswoman said, We appreciate this is a difficult time for those concerned and are engaging with them. A Suffolk-based letting agent who left customers £80,000 out of pocket when his business closed has been jailed for 34 months. Before Ipswich Crown Court on Friday was 46-year-old Francis Smart, who was the proprietor of Smart Residential Letting Agents, which was based in Newmarket. He pleaded guilty at an earlier hearing to two offences of fraud by abuse of position by retaining rent and deposits. Sentencing him, recorder Gabrielle Posner described the case as sad. She said, It is sad for the victims of your offences and sad to hear how your life has spiralled out of control. Officers from Suffolk Trading Standards, along with the National Trading Standards Tri-Regional Investigations Team, began investigating Smart of Dowding Avenue, Cambridge and his company in autumn 2018. It followed numerous complaints from landlords and tenants who were unable to make contact with the company after its premises at 5B Wellington Street, Newmarket, closed in July 2018, leaving them out of pocket and without answers. A number of people who had got smart to act as the letting agent for their properties and who collect rent from tenants were spoken to and there was evidence of rent being withheld in relation to 24 properties, amounting to £33,587. It was also discovered that Smart had pocketed deposits from tenants totalling £43,579 in relation to 38 properties which should have been paid into a deposit protection scheme. Jude Durr, for Smart, said his client had run a successful letting agency but had got into financial difficulties in 2015. He said Smart regretted the failure of his business and the loss to the victims of the offences. An agency carer at a Suffolk nursing home has been cleared of ill-treating a 102-year-old dementia sufferer who was screaming by grabbing her mouth and shaking her head vigorously. Giving evidence during his trial at Ipswich Crown Court, Christian Krumhoff, who was working at Stowe Langtoft Hall Nursing Home, said he hadn't touched the woman's face and had tried to quieten her by putting his finger to his mouth and saying, Shh! He also denied pulling the alleged victim up by her forearms when she slid down in her chair. Krumhoff said that at no time had the colleague he was working with on a night shift that day remonstrated with him about his conduct while he was in the woman's room. Krumhoff, 31, of New Street, Mildenhall, denied ill-treating a person who lacked capacity on April 13, 2018, and was cleared after a short trial. Laura Kenyon, prosecuting, said that after Krumhoff allegedly grabbed the woman's mouth and shook her head and grabbed her by her forearms, it was claimed a care worker colleague had told him that his behaviour was unacceptable and had reported what happened to other members of staff and the care home manager. When Krumhoff, who is a Bulgarian national, was interviewed under caution about the allegations, he denied ill-treating the woman. He said other care staff at the home looked down on him and he claimed the allegations were the result of discrimination. Miss Kenyon told the court the alleged victim suffered from dementia and had limited mobility, was unable to make decisions and could be disruptive. On the night in question, at about 2am, she had started screaming loudly and disrupting other residents of the home. She was sitting in a recliner chair and Krumhoff and the other care worker had started to move her to her bed in a bid to try and settle her, said Miss Kenyon. She continued to scream loudly and at that point the defendant had allegedly grabbed her round the mouth and shaken her head vigorously. His colleague told him to stop and said it was unacceptable behaviour, said Miss Kenyon. 
a Suffolk man has undertaken an unusual challenge to raise money for his friend to receive treatment in Germany. Stephen Cook from Needham Market has set himself the challenge of walking 200 miles throughout August and September, a total of around 3.1 miles a day, and he's doing it all barefoot. The 42-year-old father of two is raising money for his friend Claire Ship, who was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of cancer. The treatment Claire requires to increase her life expectancy and potentially save her life is in Germany and costs £100,000. Stefan has decided to walk around Suffolk in his bare feet in order to raise as much money as possible to help give Claire the treatment. He said, Claire and I met at university and I used to just wander around in bare feet all the time and I continued to do it when I moved to London around 10 years back. So it is a throwback to the person I used to be but also I wanted to do a challenge that would last a longer time to give more people the chance to donate. At first it was really difficult. I was surprised at how painful it was. The hardest part of the challenge, other than the toughening up of feet, was the time. You have to be really mindful and aware of where you're stomping. Normally my walking pace is pretty rapid, but in bare feet you have to slow right down, so it is taking me so much longer than I anticipated. Stefan, who grew up in Bury St Edmunds, tends to walk around Needham Lake and surrounding areas and has said he gets some disgusted and uncomfortable looks. It's absolutely astonishing the looks that I get. The last time I did this, I was at university and obviously I looked like a student anyway, so no one was really bothered. But these days, when you're wandering around a place like Bury St Edmunds, when you're in your mid-forties and in bare feet, people do look. <laughs> A Bury St Edmunds resident is fearful for his own safety, claiming passing heavy traffic is damaging both the inside and outside of his flat. Daniel Bickerstaff, who goes by the name Paul, lives in one of the flats in the Vinefields near the Martins Care Home. For the past six months, he has become increasingly concerned that the building is not structurally sound and wants his housing association, Havebury Housing Partnership, to carry out a Schmidt hammer test which checks the rigidity and elasticity of a building. The 54-year-old, who has lived in the property since October 2019, said heavy traffic, including bin lorries, delivery vehicles and ambulances, is an almost daily occurrence. Avery Housing has sent out surveyors to inspect the building and has assured Mr Bickerstaff the flat is safe to live in, but he wants them to go further. I feel my life is at risk, living in a building that could fall down any time, he said. On a Thursday, when the bin men pick up the rubbish, I get dust falling from my ceiling. There is just something not right about this. I'm going to have someone do a proper survey on the building who can do a Schmidt hammer test. That will tell me if the building is safe to live in with lorries going by. Mr Bickerstaff has noticed several cracks in his flat, with the biggest one spanning five feet on the outside of the building three to five inches deep. He added, the cracks have been getting bigger in the walls and the slabs are crushed outside the flat where the lorries sometimes park. If it needs condemning, then condemn it. If it doesn't, fair enough, I'll feel safer. But I don't feel safe until I have the test done. A spokeswoman for Havebury said, following concerns raised by a tenant of ours in the Vinefields, our technician visited and confirmed there was a minor crack on one of the walls, which we offered to repair. As our tenant continued to express concerns, two of our surveyors attended to carry out a further inspection, but were denied access to the property. We are confident the property is structurally sound, and we will continue to work with our tenant to resolve this situation. And now to our popular letters section. We begin with a letter from Anita Cork of Exning who asks, How much proof did police need to do their job? Please may I comment on two items in last week's journal, both of which I found infuriating. Firstly, 
the story about the new market estate agent, Frank Smart, who pleaded guilty to defrauding clients of rents and deposits totalling in excess of £80,000. I remember when his victims practically begged Suffolk Police to investigate this case, for which there was clear evidence of either fraud or theft. But the constabulary refused to do so, announcing that preliminary inquiries did not show that the case met the criminal burden of proof, a decision which was supported by the then Chief Constable. Perhaps Suffolk Police could now enlighten the public as to exactly how much proof was needed before they were prepared to put in the bit of effort that was needed to do the job they are paid for. Secondly, can readers remember the fanfares from the then Health Minister Matt Hancock when he announced plans for two state-of-the-art operating theatres and a 32-bed inpatient ward for Newmarket Hospital? I note the absence of any comment from Mr Hancock or his boss Boris Johnson when these plans were recently ditched because there is no money to pay for them. They appear to have met with the same fate as the multi-billion pound plans to build new hospitals and replace those which are falling apart, such as the Queen Elizabeth at King's Lynn and Hinching Brook in Huntingdon. Why should we believe a single word these people say? Uh, John M. Edwards writes his letter via email and he says... I've just read your article in the Journal of August 18th concerning the plans to add two operating theatres at the Newmarket Hospital being abandoned. This is going to be a serious blow to Newmarket and the surrounding area. This is surely the time to lean on MP Matt Hancock and to get him for once in his life to do something for the area. It would be a nice surprise for him to achieve something that we can all benefit from, which would be a first. Clifford Davy from Stowmarket says, Sir, the complex pros and cons of the many strikes and those yet to come are too much for my simple mind to solve. However, it does seem to me that at least the various unions' representatives are having their 15 minutes of fame. George McKissock of Hadley writes, I just read with a heavy heart how a survey showed that Anglian Water was the worst performing water company in England for failures in monitoring how much sewage it discharges. In 2021, there were over 2,000 sewage spills in Suffolk Rivers and 49% of Anglian's sewage discharges went unmeasured. Perhaps I should point out that water is a public utility in the other countries in the UK, so profit doesn't interfere with service quality. However, to be fair to Anglian Water, our Suffolk MPs voted to allow them to discharge raw sewage into our rivers. We get what we vote for, which includes the many Brexit benefits I've yet to see. Sigh. <laughs> Graham Day of Stowmarket writes, I read with interest Audrey Daler's recent letter on the reaction of the bus driver when she inadvertently tried to use her bus pass before 9.30am. On a trip into central Ipswich, I tried to use my driving licence instead of my bus pass. The driver grinned and said that I would not get far using it for the bus. Although the bus was crowded, I did not feel embarrassed and quickly found my bus pass. It was unfortunate that Audrey had an unpleasant experience. I have always found the bus drivers and staff helpful and Ipswich Buses, being a council-owned company, has high standards for buses and staff, which are often the envy of many other towns and cities in the UK. On the occasions when I'm at the Tower Ramparts bus station, in the Ipswich Buses are always clean and gleaming, an asset to the town. The next letter is written by Susan Harvey of Curtin. Sir, I'm a trustee of our local Curtin and Falconham Village Hall. To give you an idea of the scale of the problem hanging over us and every other village and church hall throughout Suffolk, next April our electricity costs will go up massively from 15 pence a unit to 60 pence a unit. Halls are charged as businesses. The halls will not be able to carry this load, so we'll have to put up their higher charges accordingly. 
Most of the people who hire these halls are small clubs which keep people fit and active in our rural communities. Lunch clubs, coffee mornings, keep fit classes, WI groups and clubs for the older generation. These should be of major concern to our MPs. The government is doing nothing to help this ridiculous hike in electricity costs. This present government is failing in its duty. MPs are failing in their duties to represent their constituents. If the government does not step in to put an end to this situation, it will be letting down the entire country, creating misery and despair in rural areas and elsewhere this winter. Village and church halls don't have access to money trees. If MPs cannot influence his government to do the right thing, it is time they stepped aside and made way for another government. It is time to change direction. This letter, which is headed Folly of the New Hospital Site, is written by Michael Schultz, who lives in Home Farm Lane in Bury. After objections from nine official expert consultees and members of the public, you might imagine the Hospital Trust would realise its choice of Hardwick Manor as the site for the new hospital was ill-conceived. But no, the folly continues. Addendum plans have been submitted which highlight the poor accessibility and unsuitable nature of the site and the irreversible damage it will do to one of the finest ancient irreplaceable habitats, arboretum and biodiverse sites in Suffolk. The damage means that a requirement to meet a net gain in biodiversity will not be attainable. Accessibility to the new hospital will be poor because it is nearly half a mile away from the Hardwick Lane entrance, up a steady incline. All visitors will therefore be shuttled to the hospital by costly NHS buses from a new bus terminus inside Hardwick Lane entrance, or they can walk. The Trust admits this will be a barrier to access for the elderly, but it seems to have forgotten the disabled, infirm and sick. A makeover of the Hardwick Lane entrance means the felling of 46 trees, including some of the ancient cedars which the Trusts say will alter the landscape and character of the area. We are told Mayfield Road traffic will increase, but in unbelievably nowhere else. The Trust is ignoring the objections of local residents on a range of issues. Lack of decent access to the hospital shows a disregard of consideration and dignity for visitors. The decision to have gender-neutral sanitary and changing facilities, as stated in its Equality Impact Statement, does nothing to dispel this view. Alternative site assessments were not divulged during the Trust's consultation period but it is clear from a Freedom of Information inquiry that the Ruffham site would have been chosen for the development had the Hardwick Manor site's shortcomings been correctly weighted and marked. The inquiry confirmed the Ruffham site option is still available. I suggest the Trust takes it up and halts this folly. Jan Howlett of Norman Road in Bury St Edmunds uh, writes this letter under the heading Workmen have kept going in the heat. And she says, Well, it's our turn in our quiet little row to have the workmen in, in their bright orange uniforms and bring in their bright green barriers. I'm quite an old lady, so I've no idea what they are doing or why. All I know is they start early and finish at about 4pm. But I do know this. Although no one wants them in their road, they turn up daily they work really hard, and they get the job done, although the weather has been extreme. I admire them tremendously. They earn every penny they make, and I don't suppose that's ever so much by today's standards. I'm sure we will all be really pleased when they've finished and left us all to our peaceful little road again, but it's been a real eye-opener to see them work on against all the odds, and I, for one, think they've been marvellous and done really well. Thank you. Robert Brander of Rushmere, <clears throat> Improved Visibility for Cyclists. I estimate that by the age of 80, I had cycled 60,000 miles. 
Cyclists, pedestrians and motorists are normal people. Many are unteachable, living as our Prime Minister, who will never recognise the benefits he could have from considering others. The government has squandered money labelling lanes quiet lanes. Why not consider clearly marking and making countryside footpaths suitable for the present situation? Between the ages of 60 and 70, it would have been convenient for me to be able to walk to our local Tesco to do my shopping. From 70 to 80, due to age, it would have been more appropriate to cycle. Instead, I used to drive round twisting roads with cars and the occasional cyclist and pothole getting in my way. Car-driving politicians and narcissistic councillors are not interested in suggestions. They are so devoted to their belief in their great powers that they persist in their complaining that others are inconsiderate. Playford Road, Rushmere, Ipswich, was developed in the days when rich people had horses. There was no need for visibility when emerging from one's driveway. The clatter of horses' hooves could be heard to warn people. Vegetation and embankments have been built up, which makes exiting from properties hazardous. Councillors have organised the squandering of public money on speed humps to reduce vehicle speeding. They play at speed cops with their speed camera. They are disappointed at the results, but refuse my suggestion for improving visibility. There are some councillors who see things from my angle, but are shouted down or ignored at meetings. The government passes hollow laws in which they delegate responsibility. And again, another letter on the same subject about cycling from Peter Rounce of Northgate Street in Bury St Edmunds. Headed cycle safely, but by all means do it legally. He says, I read with interest the letters from the past two weeks about cycling on the pavements and agree totally with the points made. However, I think there is a bigger issue. There appears to be uncertainty about whether cycling on the pavement is allowed. I've challenged people who say that the police recommend it, saying it is safer than cycling on the road. Safer for whom? Certainly not the pedestrian. Everybody challenged either has an excuse, safety mainly, but for whom? Or gives abuse. It seems to be the pedestrian's fault for being in the way. I've also seen people completely covered with safety gear, cycling on the pavement. Young dads with children are the worst offenders. Who are they protecting? I think we need a formal statement from the police about whether cycling on the pavement is legal or not. If so, c'est la vie, and us pedestrians will just have to trust to look when walking out of our front gate. If it is illegal, then please enforce it and erect some signs to reinforce the message. Pavement cycling is widespread. Not just delivery riders and other young men, though they tend to cycle the fastest. It's only a matter of time before a pedestrian gets hurt. Safe cycling is obviously a good thing, but legally, please, and not on pavements. We're coming to our features now. In this short feature article, local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor looks at the history behind St Andrew's Castle in Bury St Edmunds, Andrew, St Andrew's Street, South. Bury St Edmunds did not need a castle to subdue its inhabitants when the Normans invaded in 1066. It was already under their control through its French abbot, Abbot Baldwin. However, in St Andrew's Street South, there is a property that is called St Andrew's Castle. According to Thomas Warren's maps of 1776 and 1791, the castle was built during this period. An attorney, Ezekiel Spark, whose dates are 1762 to 1816, was the owner of this so-called strawberry gothic creation, which has a stone vaulted ceiling in the reception hall. County archivist M.P. Statham in 1961 refers to it as Sparks Castle, probably the first major build outside the town's medieval western defences, the Ditchway. It was built on land that once belonged to the Ray family, 
who were prosperous yarn makers in the town. Orbel Ray died in 1768 and left his business to nephew James Oakes, who had entered the family firm aged 16. As the wool industry declined, Oakes got out and went into banking, with Ezekiel Spark becoming his attorney. The castellated walls of St Andrews later appealed to one George Bowby, who lived there from 1865 to his death in 1890. Bowby ran a coal yard on Station Hill, called Bowby Brothers, Robert in name only. Robert had the very successful engineering works at St Andrew's Ironworks, situated on Oak's former combing sheds. Bobies grew into one of the town's largest employers until closing in 1971. A reminder of this company today is via Robert Bobie Way. In 1929, the Sisters of St Louis opened a convent school at the castle. It was granted grammar school status in 1958, becoming a state-run Catholic school in 1971. The school vacated the castle in 1989, but still stayed on site at St Louis Catholic Middle School until closing in 2016. The active business centre opened a year later at the castle. They are still there, but it is also licensed to stage weddings. The second of our feature articles this evening examines the unsolved murder of a young mother which took place 70 years ago and for which no one has ever been brought to justice. She'd just gone to fetch some fish and chips, but she never came home. 70 years ago, 21-year-old Heather Abbott, a young wife and mother, was brutally murdered and her body dragged and dumped in a field just 500 yards from her Freckenham home. A killer has never been found. The grainy photos which appeared in newspapers across the country at the time depicted a vivacious young woman with everything to live for, but as the police investigation stalled, the tone of those tasked with finding her murderer began to change and it was Heather's reputation and lifestyle being called into question with veiled suggestions she'd been the architect of her own downfall. Evidence was given at her inquest that she'd been fond of the company of men and police were convinced she'd gone voluntarily to the field where she was later found brutally bludgeoned as her handbag and cycle were found at a spot where it was said she had been known to have left them on previous occasions when she had visited the field with men. Heather's 24-year-old husband George Abbott was one of the last people to see his wife alive. He had waited 36 hours to report her missing and, searching with a police officer, discovered his wife's battered body lying in a hollow in a field off the Wallington Road, the site of old gravel pits. Mr Abbott, a driver for a Mildenhall removal company, told police that Heather had left their home, a converted Nissen hut on Freckenham's Pines estate, at around 9.30pm on Friday, August the 15th. The hut was one of a large number, put up originally for the army, but used for civilians after the war, when there was a national housing shortage. We made the arrangement that if she was back late, I would go to bed, Mr Abbott later told the inquest into his wife's death. Heather was found with extensive head injuries, consistent with a savage assault. No murder weapon was found. It was later established she had been attacked near the road and then dragged, feet first, possibly still alive, across the rough ground to the pit where she was eventually found. There was evidence of her being held tightly by her wrists in keeping with a violent struggle as she fought for her life. A post-mortem examination later revealed Heather had been strangled but also that she had had sex before she died with, according to the coroner, an indication of force being used, although he could not be sure whether she had been raped. It was her husband, searching with Mildenhall Police Inspector White, close to where her bicycle was found, who first came across his wife's body. He turned around, put his hands to his face and sank to his knees, said Inspector White, who added, he appeared to be very shocked. He said, I've heard of these things happening, but 
I never knew there were such monsters about here. When the inspector asked Mr Abbott why he had not reported his wife missing sooner, he said he had been very worried and did not know what to do. He said he and Heather had been on very good terms and they'd never had what he called a serious quarrel. The murder saw the launch of a huge police inquiry which was to see detectives from Scotland Yard brought in to oversee the investigation. Being able to identify suspects using DNA was still more than 30 years away and the fact that Heather's body had lain undiscovered for so long and during heavy rain meant any forensic evidence had been washed away. The day after Heather's body was found, an appeal was shown at Mildenhall's Comet Cinema, urging anyone who had seen her on the Friday evening to come forward. Officers conducted house-to-house inquiries in Freckenham and Warlington, and shoppers were questioned in Mildenhall's marketplace. In all, more than 400 statements were taken, and among those interviewed were a man said to be known to police and women who had been with Heather to fortnightly dances held at Barton Mills. The finger of suspicion also pointed towards the thousands of US and British servicemen then stationed at the nearby airbase, some of whom, it was claimed, Heather had been acquainted with. After being formally approached by Scotland Yard, the American authorities instigated their own investigation, searching quarters for evidence. Special agents from the FBI were flown in to conduct an even more thorough inquiry, but they too drew a blank. As this case is now 70 years old, and no police records or exhibits remain, unfortunately, it is unlikely that it will ever be solved, said a spokesman for Suffolk Police. Heather lies in an unmarked grave in the town's Kingsway Cemetery, in a corner under the tall trees. Hmm. Right. And finally, we have a special appeal to make. We are currently looking for volunteers to join our team of processors. Our processors operate on a Thursday before the recording and the Friday after a recording session. We have several teams on a rotor that comes around every two to three weeks. Thursday volunteers would be involved in collecting the wallets from Bury St Edmund's sorting office bringing them to the studio for checking and preparing for redistribution. Friday volunteers copy the master recording onto USB memory sticks using a bulk copying machine, very easy to use with full instructions, and put them into pre-addressed wallets before taking them back to Bury St Edmund's sorting office. At least one volunteer on each day needs a vehicle to transport the bag of wallets to the sorting office. Training and support will be provided for volunteers. If you know of any family members or friends or neighbours who may be able to offer a couple of hours once or twice a month to help with these roles, please put their names and contact details in the wallet when you return your memory stick. Thank you. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St. Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Well, News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sheila, Pat, Harvey and Val, it's goodbye. 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 listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided 
under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.